Welcome to the Mike Abadir Show. You'll want to sit tight this hour as hosts Mike Abadir and co-host Gino Bacola talk to the experts, celebrities, and figures from the worlds of sports and business of sports. We cover the NFL, baseball, basketball, soccer, and horse racing, so we have all of the bases covered. Now, we just need your participation. Here is your host, Mike Abadir. Thursday, April 28th, 2022. Big, big sports weekend is upon us. In fact, big sports day or evening is upon us. We are minutes away from the NFL draft getting started. We are full, fully engaged in MLB. And uh, we'll talk a, a little bit about who have been the biggest surprises, who have been underperforming, and maybe a few surprise fantasy players to keep your eye on a little bit later on during the show but we're going to get started with horse racing one of my favorite announcers in the game is at golden gate fields we had him on last week for part one of the let's call it the matt dinnerman uh series if you will and we got to know matt a little bit terms of what types of sports he likes and the teams and the players we just got to get to know him a little bit more on a personal level and today we're going to get a little bit more specific with the actual racing and um, we'll, we'll maybe revisit a little bit of history because one of the races in this big sf mile card at golden gate is the Lost in the Fog stakes, stakes. Lost in the Fog, Matt, was one of my favorite all-time horses. Um, you know, what was able to, to win here, to go off to Calder and win, piloted, of course, by the man, Russell Bays, Russell the Muscle. What are your thoughts about Lost in the Fog? Do you remember Lost in the Fog? And maybe a few words on the man himself, Russell the Muscle Bays. And he was a horse that was not bred well in American horse racing or any horse racing. Obviously, breeders tried to breed good sires or fathers with good dams or mothers. And uh, Lost in the Fog did not have a father or a mother that were particularly great race horses at all. They weren't very good at all. And this horse sort of popped out of the bushes and said, all right, here we go. I'm new on the scene. And he became one of the best sprinters in the world at one point. Uh, he was based in the Bay Area with local trainer Greg Gilchrist, owned by a local guy, Harry Elio, and ridden, of course, by Russell Bays, who is the all-time winningest jockey, at least in North America. Um, and Lost in the Fog was just a super fast horse, and he brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. Unfortunately, he passed away due to cancer at a young age, and horses don't always... Uh, get cancer. It's not something that's as normal as humans, for example. So it's a little bit on the rare side with the way Lost in the Fog was able to actually uh, have this cancer. And he actually won a race at Churchill Downs. And we came later to find out that he had cancer at that point, and he still was able to run very, very fast. So he was just an all-hard type of horse. He passed away shortly after his racing career ended in 2006 when he got really sick. Uh, but this horse was just a warrior, and we have a Lost in the Fog memorial wall up on the turf club entrance with his halter, some pictures, his lifetime past performances, and he is one that we honor every year with the Lost in the Fog stakes, which will be run this Saturday, race 10. I'm looking forward to that. 
where do you think Russell Bays, while I've got you on here, kind of fits in the overall historical context of, of jockeys? Um, obviously, we're talking about world records, not just North American records that he's been involved with. He did tinker a little bit with the SoCal circuit, the quote-unquote big leagues, when the jockey colony at Santa Anita was maybe as strong as it ever was. And he fared okay. Do you think he gave it enough time? Do you think he did that because he wanted to put a stamp on kind of solidifying his place? I know he's a pretty humble guy, but what are your just maybe a quick thought or two on Russell Bays? Well, he was a very strong rider physically. I mean, we would see him carry horses across the wire. I mean, his horses would look done at the quarter pole with a quarter mile left to go, and he would literally just be all out on him and carry him across the wire. He was that type of guy. He made horses improve. He helped horses improve. Uh, he tried, he dabbled sort of down south at Santa Anita for a while. He did okay down there, but his sweet spot was definitely Golden Gate Field. And you have to remember, as a jockey, you have to have all the talent in the world uh, to be successful. You have to have a lot of talent, but you also have, the, have to have the horses to do it. And I think if Russell Bay has got the types of opportunities that some of the top jockeys around the world got, or even down south, he probably could be a top rider down there. I absolutely believe that. And he didn't really get those types of mounts, and I think that was his main problem. I don't think it was because of, of his ability. I think it was because of the horses he were riding weren't quite as good as the horses that at that time were going to a star-studded jockey's room. You had Lafitte Pinkai, Eddie Delahousse, I mean, guys like that that already had been established and were getting a lot of high mounts and high-quality mounts. So I think Russell Bays just wasn't able to get those types of mounts, but I think if he did, he would have been just fine down south. He ended up winning 12,842 races. I mean, 12,000 races, Mike. I mean, think about how many races that is. That's a lot of mounts. I mean, if that was your lifetime yeah. mounts alone, <laughs> that would be you know, a healthy career. That would mean that you've been entrusted yeah. by a lot of trainers and owners. So that many wins, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, he, really he wrote, I'm looking at the them. stats here, 50, I will, I will look at the stats here, you wrote 53,578 races. I mean, that's just, that's insane, Mike. That's absolutely insane. And, and, and towards the end of his career, he rode the card. I mean, sometimes when jockeys get older, they might ride four or five a day. They might pick their spot. No, until he retired, he was riding every race on the card. Yeah, and what was also really impressive to kind of add to what you're talking about is, you know, I remember years back when Fairplex was in the SoCal circuit, you would see most of the, you know, quote-unquote name jockeys take take a few days or a couple of weeks off to regroup or maybe head to the Kentucky circuit or something like that. Same thing up in the Bay Area and the Northern Cali Fair circuit. But Bay's, I mean, he he was just one of those guys that loved his profession and you'd see him riding at Vallejo and at Stockton and Pleasanton and of course Santa Rosa which in my opinion is a really really good underrated uh, track but B Bay's just he did it all man and it didn't matter if it was a low level 
claiming race or maiden claiming race or or a stakes race he he was going to give it his all every single time wasn't necessarily the best friend of the long shot player but uh definitely <laughs> if you like picking winners you know i've i hit several all bays pick threes and pick fours uh, during my career with uh russell bays in the saddle and the thing about Russell Bays is, like you said, he would try on any horse. I mean, I was told by a trainer one time who was dropping a horse in class. He wasn't quite at the point that he was in his career earlier when the horse was thriving. And uh, he ran poorly in a race. And Russell hopped off the horse. And the trainer said, you know, I'm sorry, Russell. I, I won't give you a horse like this again. I know, you, you know you're the top rider. You want to win races. And he goes, no, no, put me on this horse back. Just drop him one more notch. I want to win with him. I think I can win with this horse. Just drop him another step in class, and we're going to win. I promise I want to ride this horse back. And that's probably part of the reason why he was so successful was because he just wanted to win, and he wanted to figure out a way to win, and he was a very loyal man to many of his uh, supporters, including a man named Jerry Hondorfer, who was here for a long, long time and really ruled the circuit for quite a number of years. And Russell Bays was not only a great rider, but he was a very smart business guy and he was a very loyal person to his customers, which were the trainers. Does he ever uh, come through Golden Gate? Do you uh, see Russell very often? You know, ever since he retired, he's never been back, which is an interesting scenario there. He has never come back. He left the racetrack one day and said, I've done my time, and that's the last time we've seen of him. But I know he's still in this area, in the Bay Area here. But he's sort of stayed away from the track, and I think he's just at a new stage in his life, you know, where he's, where he's doing other things, and he's uh, moved on to the next chapter, it appears. Wow, you would think that uh, with all the knowledge he's got, especially with that story you just told about dropping him one level, you would think that maybe he would uh, give it a shot as a trainer. But the hours are demanding, not an easy job. It's a thankless job. You know, you don't necessarily get all the credit in the world unless you win huge races, um, probably blamed unnecessarily for, for losses. I could see why he wouldn't, but I think he would be pretty good. Don't, don't you think? I think so. I mean, you know, you see certain jockeys that go on to be really successful trainers and others that don't, but Russell Bays was just all horsemen. I mean, he comes from a horse family. A lot of his family members were around horses, they trained horses, they rode horses, they shot horses, they were exercise riders. I mean, the Bays family is a very prominent racehorse family, uh, so I have no doubt that if Russell Bays were to decide, hey, I want to be a trainer, that he'd be very good at it. Yeah, no doubt in my mind. We're talking with Matt Dinnerman, the track announcer at Golden Gate Fields. They've got a big race card coming up on Saturday. Don't forget about Friday also, nine race card lot of wagering opportunities and what i will say before we dig deep into the saturday race card is you know on tvg they've done really good marketing job with la Salle, calling it the uh you know the best uh, the early pick four being the uh, best uh you know best bet in racing or something along those lines i think there's a one and one a because i do think that that low takeout early pick five at golden gate for the players that don't regularly play it, I urge you to check it out because it pays very well. It pays far and above 
what you would expect when you just look at the odds after the fact. Uh, great wager, Matt. Great payoff. It's typically you're 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 only dealing with six and seven horse fields, um, but sometimes it pays 15, 20 fold the pick four in that sequence. Yes, and the reason is early on in the card, you get sometimes the smaller field sizes on the day, and the second half of the program's a little bit stronger, if not a lot more stronger. But the key with the early pick five, and I agree with you, Mike, this is one of, if not my favorite bet in the Bay Area, or just in California, because it's the same thing down south in Southern California. It's a low 14% takeout wager. So for those listening who don't really know what takeout is, takeout is basically you get a pool size in the pick five. Let's just say you have $100,000 in a pick five pool. If the takeout is 20%, that means 20000 is taken out before the remaining 80000 goes back to the horse players depending on how many tickets win. It's spread out through that pool of 80000 and the other 20000 goes to the tracks or whatever they need to pay for uh, when it comes to simulcasting, etc. Basically, back to the business. So the lower the takeout means the more money that's going back to the horse players. And that's why horse players like lower takeout, because they're getting better payouts, because they're getting more money back to them. And that is very, very, very important. And I think there are people that if the wager was a high takeout bet, you wouldn't see as nearly as much money in the early pick five because of that. Because it's lower, people are going to play it, knowing that even if you get a few favorites winning and maybe a few third or fourth choice you're still going to get a better payout than you would with a higher takeout and the same result. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you mentioned the uh, specifics of the takeout and great explanation for those who maybe are casual horse racing fans. Maybe they're warming up a little bit before the uh, big derby weekend uh, a week out. Typically, and you'd, you'd mentioned pool size as 100,000. That's kind of a, a good barometer. That's kind of like a nice benchmark for tracks that are you know, similarly sized as Golden Gate Fields. On Saturday, it's double that as a guarantee. 200,000 guaranteed pick four. And typically, races at Golden Gate may end in race eight or race nine. They're just getting started. Race nine is the start of that guaranteed $200,000 pick four. And I I almost couldn't believe my eyes. I see 14 entries here. We've got Baltus and uh, several guys from the SoCal circuit. And it's not just for that race. It's for the following race. You got, you know, Doug O'Neill and, uh, you know, I know Mathis sends some horses, uh, you know, every direction. We've got Mandela. Um, but this whole sequence is is really good, especially races 9, 10, and 11. But the 14-horse the field is, a, is an eye-popping number. And, man, if you even get a medium price in that, I think the morning line favorite is just like 4 to 1 or something like that. You know you're going to get value in this, Matt. Very much so. And I actually went on an earlier uh, YouTube show to talk about this card. So basically, Saturday is our biggest card of the year. It's the Gold Rush Weekend, an annual event. It's the biggest race day in Northern California every year. We've got six stakes on Saturday, a couple of stakes on Sunday. Uh, And the headliner is that 14-horse field, the Grade 3 San Francisco Mile. 
remember, there's the early pick five and the early pick four, which is the first five races and first four races on a card, respectively. Then we have a second bet, our series of bets, the late pick four, which is the last four races, the late pick five, the last five races. And those are where the guarantees lie. So we've got $100,000 guaranteed in the late pick five on Saturday and Sunday. And then on Saturday and Sunday for the late pick four, both are guaranteed at 200000 And it kicks off the late pick four on Saturday with that 14-horse San Francisco mile, which is our biggest race of the year. Grade three, $250,000 a mile on the turf and a full field. So uh, four to one morning line just tells you that the horses are very evenly matched. And looking at the race on paper, I would agree with you. It's a very evenly matched bunch and i think it's going to be based on the trip you're going to have horses that are in contention to win they don't get a great trip they get blocked by horses maybe they're a little wide on the turn can't quite get there and a horse that gets the good trip is going to win it's a very competitive race and if you can find a price not only is that great if you bet win play show exact to try super you're also looking at good payouts in those multi-race bets like the late pick four it's a really good race Absolutely. And, you know, we got some really good turf riders coming in from out of town as well, like Joe Bravo. Not sure I've ever seen him riding in uh, the Bay Area before, but also, uh, you know, mainstays on the turf in SoCal like Brice Blanc and uh, Valdivia and Edwin Maldonado. It's really, really uh, uh, an exciting race to handicap. You know, there's a bunch of horses there that are kind of in that four to one, five to one, six to one range. Let's dissect it a little bit more after a quick commercial break, and we'll kind of get into uh, maybe who are some of the long shot plays to look at, and also get your thoughts on a young rider who's probably my quickly becoming my favorite at Golden Gate in uh, Espinosa. And uh, we're not talking about Victor. We'll explain right after a quick commercial timeout. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. 
all the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This is the Mike Abadir Show. If you want to call in today, we can be reached at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Mike at the com. Now, back to this week's program. Talking to Matt Dinnerman from Golden Gate Fields, track announcer, uh, on-track analyst, handicapper. He does it all for Golden Gate Fields, does a tremendous job. And we are talking about the big Gold Rush Stakes-filled uh, card on Saturday. Also, he had mentioned a little bit about the guarantees on Sunday. So if you're a player and you're looking maybe to build a little bankroll before the Oaks and Derby weekend, this is a good place to take a look because there are opportunities galore. And speaking of the Oaks, let's get started in terms of maybe some mild handicapping and taking a look at the California Oaks, which is race eight on Saturday. It's uh, 10 till 5 p.m. So on into the evening here in California, well into the night back east. If you don't want the race day to end, this is a great place to continue letting it ride. Uh, This is the start as Matt just mentioned, of the guaranteed $100,000 late pick five. This Oaks field is, is pretty competitive as well. Um, I mean, you got a two-to-one favorite in My Kentucky Girl and, uh, and a five-to-two in Anthony's Cleopatra. But if you could get past those and, and pluck a, a medium price, there, there are a lot of interesting and intriguing opportunities here, Matt, including... Doug O'Neill at 12 to one and a, and a Peter Yurton at eight to one. Um, you know, Wong is obviously going to be the, the man with the target, but you know, there's some, some good human connections and some good equine runners in this field, Matt. There are a three-year-old Phillies here going mile on the 16th on the Tapita surface. And the real key is my Kentucky girl, first time routing, she's by American Pharaoh, the Triple Crown winner, purchased her for a lot of money, did own her Tommy Town Thoroughbreds. They got her for $475,000 as a yearling. But as the favorite, we know she's going to get bet. Good breeding. One first out down at Santa Anita. Jonathan Wong's our leading trainer here. Apparently, she's always trained up here, and she's always trained really well. She just shipped down south for the first race. I really like Anthony's Cleopatra. I think she's going to run really well. She's a really nice filly. Uh, she easily defeated Power Surge, who we saw come back to win a stake at Santa Anita for Cowbreds. And Anthony's Cleopatra comes off a really good runner-up finish, first-time routing. I think she's going to be tough in there. Uh, but you've got some also good quality, like you said. Music Festival won an allowance very impressively. She's 10-1. to 1. She's a very intriguing long shot. She's bulletproof. Is very nice pedigree, first-time routing for her. And a couple of Southern California shippers there. I believe exactly Wendy, Mike, just to let you know and the viewers that I believe she re-entered for Saturday, or I'm sorry, Sunday. I think she re-entered for Sunday. I'm going to check for you right now. And she may be in a stake on Sunday. So she may be a defection from that race. I'm just taking a look right now. And it appears that that is uh, the case. That is the case. What race number on Sunday then? 
Uh, that'll be race nine, the Campanile Stakes, a $75,000 race for California bred. So it looks like O'Neill just put her in the open race against Kentucky breds and Florida breds and other Cal breds. But he's going to opt to run her, I believe, on Sunday. And will, uh, will she be piloted by Armando Ayuso on Sunday as well? She will. That, well, that's what it says here. I mean, I, I believe the rule is if you enter two stakes, you would have the choice to run in one or the other. But I would imagine they're probably going to run on Sunday. I would wait until scratch time but uh, to make sure. But I would imagine she's probably, if she re-entered, she's planning on running in the ninth on Sunday. Now, the reason I, I made sure to specify Ayuso is because as a player – Look, horse racing players are very smart and they catch on to trends pretty quickly. I've always been of the mindset that if you're able to identify a really good jockey before the public does, you maybe at most have about two to three weeks to take advantage of that. Otherwise, it's going to be reflected in the odds. And I'll tell you, two guys that I've been impressed with, um, they're not necessarily brand new jockeys or anything like that, but young jockeys who are riding really hard. Ayuso at uh, Los Alamitos, he's ridden well enough that he's gotten a call up to the bigs, so to speak, at Santa Anita. And it's obviously trusted enough to come up north uh, for Doug O'Neill. And then a guy that I love, Espinoza. And at Golden Gate, and, and Matt was kind enough to teach me how to pronounce his first name, Asael Espinoza. Give us a little flavor as to what you're seeing from this kid, because I'm seeing that his win percentage has been going up steadily in the last three years. He gets into the winner's circle. He rides just as hard with the favorite as he does with long shots. And you'd better think about including him if you're a super player, because this guy's in the money a high percentage of the time. Asael is a very good jockey. He is very aggressive out of the gate. He's good with speed horses, gets on a lot of speed horses, but he can ride from off the pace as well. He's very tactical as a rider. He's got good hands, and for those who don't watch racing often, when you've got sort of, when you're quiet in the saddle, when you've got good hands holding a horse, you can get him to relax a little better. He's got really good hands. He's very smooth on a horse. He has very good posture in the saddle. Very strong rider when he gets down and drives and pumps on his horse to get going. He's got good form. He finishes the race strong with his horses. Uh, typically makes good decisions. He's very patient. And on the tapita surface, you have to be patient. Our main track, and especially the turf. So he's pretty much the whole package. And, and that's why he's winning in a good percentage. He rides pretty smart races. And it appears that he knows exactly where his horse should be in a race. And he puts him in the right spot. So, I mean, all of those things combined, that's what you want in a jockey. And I think he's sort of got that it factor. It's like anything with uh, a job involving some sort of specialized talent. You either have it or you don't have it. And I think he has it. I think he's very solid. Now, if you watch the Golden Gate feed uh, simultaneous with TVG, of course, uh, like I do, you'll see that about, I don't know, five, six minutes to post, Matt will come on and uh, lay out his predictions for the race, how the race sets up, and um, he, he gives out his uh, top uh, three in order. Have you done so yet for this race eight, the California Oaks, uh, or is that a surprise? Can, can you kind of give us some insight as to who might be your top three in this race? 
I haven't handicapped the race fully, but just off of names, I can give you a pretty good idea of who I think will run well. I think uh, Anthony's Cleopatra is going to be my top pick. I just think she's a really nice filly. And the runner she lost to last time out, a male named Unraptured, he's a very good horse. And we're going to see him in stakes at Woodbine. He's moved up to Canada since then. Uh, my Kentucky Girl is one I'm probably going to like in the top three. And then uh, Music Festival, she's very interesting, number two, for the Steve Sherman Barn, 10-1 to on the morning line. Nice filly, really loved the route last time out. And I think she's freshening up here about a month and a half, which should be fit and ready to go as a price. So those are sort of three that I'm keying in on. It's subject to change, but those are the three I'm looking at at the moment. Okay, and we'll stick to the sequence here. Uh, race nine, the San Francisco Mile. It's a graded stakes yeah. race, grade three. We talked about it a little bit, 14-horse field. I, I've always been of the mindset, Matt, when I'm playing at any track that has a big card that is going to attract out-of-towners, I kind of give a slight advantage to the home field guys. I almost feel like they're trying to kind of hold serve protect the home court advantage if you will and uh I'm not saying that anybody tries harder in one race versus another race but athletes get up for big moments i always give a little bit of the advantage to, to the home field the home runners here if you will what are your thoughts in terms of uh, a top three in this race and, and do you kind of agree with my sentiment that when you're looking up you know, tracks that are hosting these big races, you know, maybe there's a slight advantage. Um, there's exceptions to the rule, of course. Kind of seems like anytime uh, uh, Florent Giroux is going into Sam Houston, he's going there for a reason. But generally speaking, that's kind of my rule as a handicapper in, ter in, in terms of trying to find some value. Well, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that especially the riders, for example, you know, if they're local, they want to win that big race. So do the trainers, so do the owners. So they're going to have their horses as fit as they possibly can. And the riders are going to ride super hard to try to win these races. They're always trying hard, of course. They want to win every race they can, but it's extra special to them. And I'm sure you've talked about it, mentality, when you talk about the mental toughness of athletes in general and what they have to go through and endure to try to get to the top, which is not easy. Uh, they're very tough, and they want to win the big races, and this is their time to shine. So I would say mentally they're all in for it. Um, after all, we do have horses that are racing, and at the end of the day the horses still have to compete and uh, I think that the class edge is down south, um, but the good news is that the local horses, they do get to run out of their own stall. They, they don't have to ship. Some horses ship, and they don't take to the ship, even if it's an eight-hour van ride up here to Golden Gate. Some horses don't necessarily take to that all that great. You would imagine these trainers down south would send horses that they feel no problem. They should be fine shipping, but you just never really know. So that's sort of my feeling on that. There are a lot of different factors to determining whether a horse is going to run well and if they do indeed run well. And I suppose that's definitely could be a factor. Their mentality. Okay, I'm gonna while we're on this race, Matt, I'm gonna give out three horses to consider for you long shot players out there. And this is strictly based on what we just talked about. Local riders, they're gonna be trying really hard and you're going to get a big price. I'm going to start with Jimmy Blue Jeans, 15 to 1, jockey that I've mentioned that I'm high on, Asael Espinosa riding for Andy Mathis. How about 
Number nine, Camino del Paraiso, uh, OJ Herigui, 15 to one, piloted by Catalina Martinez. And maybe my favorite out of the three is number 10, Noldi, uh, ridden by Pedro Torero, who is really an underrated jockey. He comes in at a very high clip, riding for the Sherman Barn, and he's getting a generous 20 to one morning line. Any thoughts on those as big long shot possibilities, whether it be on the win end or underneath? I think Jimmy Blue Jeans is pretty interesting. Uh, he's a horse that he gets brave on the lead. It looks like he's better when he's on the lead. He sort of got everything his own way in his last race. He got a clear and easy lead. It's like humans, you know, when you're seeing people running fast in front of you, if you're running in a race, it's going to set up for you to run on and get those guys because they're going to be tired late in the game if they're using up all that energy. But if somebody gets a loose, easy lead and goes at a nice, easy pace, they're able to kick on when they need to, and the others can't quite catch to them. That's sort of what happened, the latter scenario with Jimmy Blue Jeans in the last race. But that race was on the Tapita, too, and he's also better on the turf. So I think you could be on to something with Jimmy Blue Jeans. Camino Del Paraiso is just a very hard-knocking horse. He's won four races, stakes here at Golden Gate, and a couple other other types of races. Uh, he didn't run well in Arizona last time out, but the turf's a little bit different there. It's a little more on the sandy side, sort of. There's some sand in there. I just don't think he really took the grass that day. Probably will need to improve to win. But I think Camino Del Paraiso is definitely one to consider underneath and exotics. I think that's probably your better play with him. Noldy's going to have to improve to win. We haven't seen him race in two and a half years. He's been working very fast on the Tapita, but... Uh, I think it just feels like Steve's giving him a race here. He's got talent. He won a grade two when he was a three-year-old a few years ago. He's now a six-year-old horse, so he is coming off a long layoff. But if he were to win, that would be a fantastic training job by Steve Sherman off a two-and-a-half-year layoff. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit for time's sake and move on sure. to race 10. Sure. Uh, this is a race where I'm probably not going to take a stab and try to beat at least uh, the three morning line choices. Uh, I'm going to land on uh, no no exciting long shots here. Uh, two, four, and six. Uh, the the Steve Miotti runner with Espinosa number two is a seven to two morning line. That's at any port in a storm. Uh, the number four better trip Nick. Uh, Jonathan Wong runner ridden by Eden Roman and number six strong constitution Doug O'Neill shipper with the Billy the Kid Anton Georgie piloted you're gonna get a nice nine to two number I'm not sure that I'm gonna need to go any more than three deep maybe I shave one off so I can go a little bit deeper in my pick five and pick four plays what are your thoughts on race 10 Matt Race 10, I think the pace is going to be fast. I think any port in a storm and better trip Nick, two horses you like, they're going to be out there fighting on the lead, and they're going to be going at a fast clip. So I think out of those three, I, I don't think Strong Constitution is the best horse in the race. I don't. But he might get the right trip out of your three that you like. And like you said, 9-2, to two, he's the highest price of the three, so that's worth a look. I think it could set up for an off-the-pace type of horse. Uh, Murphy's Tiger, he's going really well right now, number three. He's not the class of the horse. He's a, the class of the race, but he's a good horse. And a big, big price that I think really could spice things up is number 10 top executive, who's reportedly working very well. He's got a good post and is going to get a good stocking trip. So interesting race there, Mike. Very interesting race. Absolutely. We're going to move on to the uh, 
fourth leg in the pick five, third leg of the late pick four, race 11. Is it the Camilla Urso or Camilla Urso? Whichever the case, it's a big field of, of uh, 10 with two also eligibles. This one seems uh, to be fairly wide open to me. You have a, a lukewarm morning line favorite of, of three to one. Of course, that's going to get a lot of money and a lot of play because of the trainer, big name trainer uh, from SoCal, Phil Diamato. I think that's where a lot of the money's going. Is that where our winning plays are going to be geared around, though? This is a, a five furlong contest on turf. Well, she likes to be close to the pace, and there's other pace in here. Lots of pepper. She is fast, fast, speedy mare. So she's going to have to contend with that. I sort of look at the two Jonathan Wong entrants and think they both have a really good shot. Dynasty of her own and Sadie Bluegrass. I don't know which one I'm going to pick. Last year, Sadie Bluegrass ran in this race as a really bad trip. Probably should have won. And Dynasty of her own, she loves the Tapita. She's better on Tapita, our main track, but likes grass as well. She's run okay over it, and she is working. I saw her last workout. Fantastic. A-plus. Look great. So one of those two I'm probably going to use from off the pace. But another race, Mike, very very competitive in this very competitive week pick four. Yeah, and you, you, you don't get any breaks in the finale either, Matt. you got a bit, no. another big field <laughs> to close things out. Race 10, I still haven't been able to figure out. I'm glad I have about, you know, 36 hours or so to be able to to make a decision. I guess it's more like 48 hours to, to make a final decision. But this race is wide yeah. open as well. Morning line there is just 7-2. to two. Rock till you drop. Uh, Ed Moger, Silvio Amador. Um, there's there's ten and one AE for this race. So, where where do we go here, Matt? When we're trying to close out and uh, and and take down this big pool. This is a really tough race. I mean, if you single horse in this race and you win. My hat's off to you. My <laughs> top pick, I actually did I actually did make a top pick in this race. Friday's at Shady. I looked at this race, just sort of looked at the names and some of the running styles, and this horse really draws to me at eight to one. I thought he ran a fantastic race last time out. He's won at this level before. Good horse, hard knocking, solid horse, and he's got a good trainer, Jack Steiner, who's a very underrated, very good trainer with a good jockey to Evan Roman. He's gonna get a good stocking trip. I think two starts ago off a layoff. He needed that race. That wasn't his best. Last time out, he put it all together and beat a good horse far west who had run won four or five races in a row. So he beat a good horse that day, and I think he's ready in race 12, number four Fridays at Shady, but wide open race. I mean, he can make a case for every horse in the race. Matt, well done, my friend. This segment has gone by so fast. I can't believe we're over 40 minutes in. This was a breeze. It was enjoyable. Thank you so much, Matt. And before we let you go, give our listeners how they could follow you on social media as they ramp up for this Golden Gate card on Saturday and Sunday. You can follow me on Twitter at 3ColtsHandicap. That's number 3ColtsHandicap. Or you can just type in Matt Dinnerman Twitter, and I'm sure my page will pop up there. It has been a pleasure chatting with everybody and of course you mike and we're gonna have a great day on saturday so if you're in a if you're a racing fan it's one of the best cards in the country all day all weekend this week really uh, on saturday at golden gate especially great card so we're really looking forward to it mike and we appreciate you uh, helping us pump it up 
Absolutely, my friend. Thank you so much for your generous generosity with your time. Check out that Golden Gate card, folks. I'm telling you, it's not going to let you down, especially if you're looking to uh, maybe get a big score before Derby weekend. So big thank you to Matt Dinnerman, who, in my opinion, is a very technically sound announcer. He's got an enjoyable, soothing voice, and he creates a lot of excitement just on a race by race basis in a consistent manner. So thank you so much, Matt. Appreciate you, brother. All right, my friend. Thank you so much, Mike. Good luck this weekend and we'll chat soon. Hopefully. Sounds good. We will definitely do so. Okay. A little bit over on this segment, but it was well worthwhile. We're going to take our final commercial timeout and we're going to talk a little bit, of course, about the NFL draft and maybe a baseball tidbit or two right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Sports continues to grow and evolve to ever-increasing prominence in today's society. On All Around Sports, host John Inglesby will connect with the leading newsmakers from the sports world, including players, owners, and fellow sports journalists discussing the top news and events that are relevant to sports today. John will also report from and offer his experience of the world's top sports events. Tune into All Around Sports with John Inglesby, Mondays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety channel have you become a member yet sign up now to become a member of voice america it's always free and easy plus you get to take advantage of some great member benefits get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels keep track of your favorite episodes shows and hosts in your own customizable library find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites plus you get insider access with our newsletter membership gives you more sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right This is the Mike Abadir Show. If you want to call in today, we can be reached at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Mike at themikeabadirshow.com. Now, back to this week's program. Back on the final segment here of the Mike Abadir Show, we're going to talk a little bit of NFL draft. Before I do... Let me just say, Justin Verlander is back, folks. This guy is wheeling and dealing for the Astros. Another really stellar performance today. Seven innings of four-hit ball. Gave up just one run, eight strikeouts, no walks. He's got a microscopic 1.73 ERA. Don't sleep on Justin Verlander, fantasy players, because he's wheeling and dealing. Okay, let's talk about the NFL draft for a few minutes here. Now, in most years, we spend a lot of time talking about the draft. We bring in Rick Saratella from Sports Illustrated. You guys know him. He's a gold jacket wearing member of the Mike Avedere show. He's on here all the time. This year, I felt it wasn't necessarily the year to invest a lot of time in 
draft talk, so to speak. Um, let me clear up some misconceptions and then I'll give you a take on this draft overall. So I'm going to educate you folks a little bit about the NFL draft, because one of the first questions I always get is, are you going to be in wherever the telecast is coming from? So are you going to be in Las Vegas? Uh, so let me clear something up. The NFL draft is not in Las Vegas, guys. As much as the media and everybody wants you to think it is, it isn't. So then what is in Vegas? What's in Vegas is the telecast. That is a centralized location that they have agreed to in advance to broadcast the NFL draft, to have the panelists of, you know, Mel Kuyper and whoever else is going to be on ESPN, uh, Steve Young, uh, and NFL Network with uh, Rich Eisen and company. They are going to be there because the commissioner is going to be there to announce the picks. Now, you're going to have a very tiny number of agents and players that are going to be present in Las Vegas. And they, they construct a stage and a podium for Goodell to announce the picks and for the players to come up and shake his hand. There's about seven or eight players that are invited to do so. And that's it, guys. That's all that's happening in terms of the NFL draft. And then each team sends one representative to field a phone call, which really is just conveying the final decision of the team. So where is the draft? The draft is in the war rooms for each of the 32 NFL clubs at their home base, at their headquarters. That's where the GM and regional scouts, college scouting director, player personnel director. That's where all the upper brass for every team is located. Is out on their home turf. At their headquarters. That is where the draft is, guys. It's not in Las Vegas. That's just the made-for-TV component. Just one rep per team, and all he does is field that phone call with the final selection that the war room comes up with, hands it to Goodell or to somebody to run it up to Goodell so he could announce it at the podium. And they'll probably, you know, uh, add a couple of cute stories in the mix. Maybe even get some, um, you know, uh, social brownie points talking about maybe certain causes or, or whatever that the NFL stands for. Um, because the NFL never relinquishes or seizes an opportunity to market themselves and how good they are and how great these owners are and how much they uh, abhor domestic violence and racism and all that kind of stuff. So we'll hear a little bit about that. Now, I don't want to spend much time on that. I want to talk about this draft overall because this draft overall isn't a very sexy one. And that's probably why we didn't spend a lot of time talking about it. Uh, there isn't a consensus number one pick. There's probably a few guys that are still in consideration. Just uh, about 10 minutes out, you know, the Jags go first, the Lions pick second, and the tight, uh, the uh, excuse me, the uh, Texans go third. Now, word has it that a lot of the teams that are in the first round have been trying to trade out of the first round, and I think that tells you everything that you need to know. Now. 
if I'm asked or have been asked. So is this a crappy draft? No, it's not. It's just not top end, top end heavy. What this is, is a, is a draft that's going to provide a lot of depth. And I'm going to tell you right now, teams that are going to get into the playoffs and make a run are going to need to do well on this draft because this is where they're going to supply their ball clubs with the depth that's needed to withstand injuries, fatigue, um, to create competition in training camp, etc. This is going to be a very good draft from that perspective. Is it going to create a lot of Hall of Famers? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think that this is like a, a Hall of Fame loaded draft class or anything like that. Uh, but I think you're going to get some solid starters and contributors. And that's probably the the best that teams can hope for, for the most part, with this group of young men. Now, in my mind, I think that Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan, defensive end, Kayvon Thibodeau, Oregon, defensive end, Derek Stingley Jr., LSU, cornerback. To me, those are three that I would hone in on if I'm a general manager of any of these NFL clubs that's uh, going first or second, those would be the guys that I'd be keying in on. To me, those are the best three that this draft has to produce. It's very thin on quarterbacks. We're probably going to have maybe four quarterbacks taken in the first two rounds. I don't think any of them project to be starters at the start of the season. And so I think that is very telling in terms of the quality of uh, this quarterback class. I think you're going to have maybe some good second string guys, some good clip holders, some guys who are going to maybe take a couple of years to develop. And sometimes that's how you produce the best players is you don't put them in a pressure laden situation right away. You give them some time to mature and to develop and to be an understudy of a better quarterback. And then you come in with less expectation and you light up the scoreboard. You know, that's, to me, uh, a really good underrated formula that I wish more teams would employ, but the pressure is always on. Start the guy right away. And I think it's a big disservice to a lot of these rookie quarterbacks. I think a lot of these guys who are quote-unquote busts, had they been given an opportunity to just develop a little bit and to ease up on the expectation, they would deliver better results. And look, it's the NFL's fault. Let's face it. They don't have a minor league system. They don't have a developmental season uh, system. It's the only pro sport in the world that, that doesn't have a true uh, minor league or developmental uh, league for guys to be able to hone in and, and refine their craft a little bit, learn from coaches. But the NFL doesn't want to coach players. They don't want to teach players. They want guys who are ready to go right out of the gate. And if you can't pick it up within the time frame of OTAs and training camp, then you can't go because we need guys who are ready to play right now, who don't need any seasoning, who don't need any teaching, um, who've got their mechanics down and are, are moldable to fit into the scheme that each respective team is going to employ. So that's a little bit about the NFL draft. And, if they had a minor league system, it doesn't have to be single A, double A, triple A, like uh, like like MLB. Uh, maybe it could be more of a developmental league like the NBA. It doesn't have to be as sophisticated and go down to 14-year-olds and, and below like soccer globally. 
but they need something. And so far, the owners have been so cheap that they've just relied on other people's money to put out whatever product, such as the CFL or the, uh, you know, up and coming USFL, to the, uh, the, the fourth rendition of that, or the XFL, the fourth rendition of that. Um, and these leagues obviously fail because they don't have the deep pockets to be able to withstand and to grow and to develop themselves and their own brand in an off-season market. Um, if the NFL had that, the quality of play would be that much better. I think it's worthy of the NFL to look into that. Even if they only had four teams, six teams, eight teams, you don't need to have 32. Uh, but you would give a lot of these draft picks a place to be able to refine their game so that way they are more ready to uh, get plugged into the equation and produce big results. Uh, maybe one day they will see the light and it will happen. But for now, that's not the case. So we're not going to have a great quarterback class uh, unless teams have a little bit of patience with these guys. I think where this uh, class, where this draft is going to be most known for are offensive tackles and defensive ends. Maybe also uh, DBs. But that's going to be the main identity of this draft you got a lot of really good offensive tackles you got to protect that quarterback right blind side especially uh and, and there's a few options here uh, i like charles cross from mississippi state quite a bit obviously the guy that's getting a lot of the attention is ikem ikanawu from nc state um but there are many more beyond that how about trevor penning from northern iowa they produce some guys here and there uh, but on the defensive side, I've already mentioned Hutchinson or Trayvon Walker from Georgia. Kayvon Thibodeau, I mentioned from Oregon. I can't believe that they've slotted him as seventh overall in terms of ESPN, at least. Uh, I think that's kind of a joke. He may be the best player in this draft when all is said and done. Uh, Jermaine Johnson, the second from Florida State, is another one to look out for. Very intriguing draft in terms of trying to figure out what's going to happen. Um, like I said, there's a lot of teams trying to trade out of that first spot. And uh, there are a few teams that don't even have a first round pick this year. Some teams felt that it was better for them to trade for a more of a certainty, like the Miami Dolphins getting Cheetah. In their mind, they're like, no matter what, the best that we could do with this draft will be far inferior to Tyreek. We're not going to be able to match that. So if that's the case, why don't you use our quote-unquote draft pick on Tyreek Hill right now? I think it makes a lot of sense. The money aspect of it is the only deterrent, is the big deterrent. But in my opinion when you have a draft class that's not going to produce Hall of Famers or loaded with Pro Bowl potential, I think that is the right move. And we've seen several teams do that. They're taking a big pass on this year's draft. The Dolphins traded out of a lot of the picks that they'd stockpiled. So we will see. We will see how this all turns out. I'm very excited for the next few days. My guys, I wish them all the best of luck. They will be day three guys on Saturday. We'll let you know how it goes. But for now, that is all the time we have 
thank you for all the listeners. Appreciate every single one of you. We will see you same time, same place next week. Enjoy your sports weekend and the NFL draft, everyone. Thanks for joining us this week for the Mike Abadir Show. Please tune in again next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time for another show with Mike and his co-host, Gino Bacola, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a great week.